This podcast is unmodified sermon audio from the Crossroads Ministry at Grace Community Church, featuring Pastor Austin Duncan. It is reproduced with permission, and original files may be found at www.gracechurch.org slash sermons. I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Job. You'll find Job in the Old Testament. It's an easy book to find when you're flipping because it's not a short book by any means. You'll find it right before the book of Psalms. So if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably land in the Psalms. And if you peel a few pages back from there, you will find the book of Job, 42 chapters long, a book that I would venture to say, unless you're super faithful and you're annual Bible reading plan, you've read parts of, but few rarely read it in its entirety because it is so long, because the middle is is so difficult. And my plan is not to teach a message or two on Job, but to spend uh, all of this semester and however long the Lord allows us to stay in the book of Job. Uh, here, and I think there's so much for us to learn from it. And as I like to do, I like to set a book up for us and and kind of ask questions like, why are we doing this? Or better, why are you doing this to us? Uh, It's a long book, I know. It's an unusual book. Uh, It's not from our cultural point of view. And there will be some challenges in studying Job. But I've chosen it intentionally, and I think it is timely, and I think it's got a message for us. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about why I think we should study the book of Job together and how this book could be formative for you in your college years and how it could have a big impact in your life and your thinking. And some of you are desperate for Job. You've talked to me about it because you've tasted suffering like his, and you think that perhaps you'll find some commonality in a book like this, and I think you will. Some of you have been eager to study Job because of the theological mysteries there. Maybe you haven't experientially suffered like Job had, but you are interested in the problem of the existence of evil and suffering. And so from that point of view, You've wanted to study this book. But I think most of you are just wondering, why Job? And so that's what I'd like to talk to you about today in an introductory sort of a way. So if you found Job chapter 1, I'll read you verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the very word of the living God. I think you know the story of Job. If not, I can sum it up for you, but I'd rather tell you a story you have heard that is in like kind. 
a single mom trying to recover from the devastating effects of a divorce, trying to adjust to life, figuring out how to relate to her husband's girlfriend, has to short sell her house because of everything that's happened. Her three kids seem to be turning against her, blaming her, not directly, but in their confusion and pain over the shattering of their parents' marriage, seem to be turning on her as well. She gets a job and has to move across the country trying to figure out how things will work with custody. But it's a promising job, and any money she had, she's sunk into this opportunity. And that company that she works for in a disastrous public scandal goes under. Nothing to do with her. And she's left destitute and divorced, without a place to live, her family turned against her. It's a common kind of story. It's a Job story. A doctor's appointment. It's another one. A doctor's appointment. You're young, you're healthy, but for some reason, they decide to investigate what you thought was an insignificant symptom. And the next thing you know, you have an oncologist. And you spend your high school years fighting for your life. Cancer's in remission. You're better, you've been told. You get married to the girl of your dreams. A wonderful honeymoon home just a few months, and suddenly your nose starts bleeding again, and you have to make another appointment to the doctor. And though in your 20s, you're now in hospice care, wondering how your life turned out this way. You know, I used to think that Job was an exceptional kind of a guy, not just in his unparalleled godliness, because it, it was. He was a man of incredible piety. But when I was younger and I read Job, I thought Job was the example of just this massive amount of shattering suffering, suffering so egregious, so painful, so all-encompassing, that it must be that Job is the example for us of someone who suffered more than we do so that however much we suffer, it will always fall short of, of Job's story. But I don't think that anymore. I give a lot of credit to Ecclesiastes for correcting my thinking. Man is born to trouble like sparks fly upward. And if you live long enough you will encounter suffering. And it may not be on the scale 
of Job's suffering. It might be worse. This is life in a fallen world. The story of Job is a story of every man in so many ways because everyone born into a fallen world will suffer. Everyone will experience the devastating effects of death and sickness and poverty and war. Job experiences all of these things. He undergoes a barrage of suffering that to him will always be inexplicable. And so for those of us who look to the book of Job and try to find an answer to theodicy, the problem of evil, the existence of suffering, we will leave, like Job did, without an easy answer. Here you have a man in the ancient world that we don't know much about his background, except he's from a land called Uz. We know he was one of the ancients, mostly because of the way his prosperity is measured. We think he may or may not have been a Hebrew person. We're not even sure of that. We don't know if he was living in the time of the book of Genesis or maybe later patriarchs, but probably not much after that. And so we know by the 6th century BC, he's so famous that the prophet Ezekiel refers to him. That's kind of the only hard deadline we can put on when Job lived. But we just know his simple story. We know that he was a man who had prosperity, success, great fortune, a family that lived in some amount of comfort and, and ease. All their needs were met. They were prosperous. He was married. He had 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. And he was a very religious man, a man who feared the God of Israel. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. He didn't exist in the time of a priestly system or a place of priestly system because he functioned as a priest for his children, all reminders of how devoted Job was. Job was truly a godly man. And the relevance of his story is the transcendence of what happens to him. One writer says it this way, it's not only because Job suffered that he's important to us, it's because he suffered in the same ways we suffer, in the vital areas of family, personal health, and material things. Job is also important to us because he searchingly questioned and boldly protested his suffering. Indeed, he went to the top with his questions. You see, it's not the suffering that troubles us. It's the undeserved suffering. Almost all of us in our years of growing up have the experience of disobeying our parents and getting punished for it. When that discipline was connected with wrongdoing, it had a certain sense of justice to it. When we do wrong, we get punished. One of the surprises as we get older, however, is that we come to see that there is no real correlation between the amount of wrong we commit and the amount of pain we experience. 
An even larger surprise is that very often there is something quite the opposite. We do right and get knocked down. We do the best we're capable of doing, and just as we are reaching out to receive our reward, we are hit from the blind side and sent reeling. Friends, this is exactly what happened to Job. What happens to Job to our reading, a man who was prosperous and lost everything, who was blessed with children and then had to bury all 10 of them, who had a wife faithfully by his side who would turn on him during the darkest part of his trial and whisper to him her own temptation to curse God and die. Job's agony is familiar to us. His prosperity and loss resonates with us. His godliness is something we would love to attain. He was a husband, a father, but he had a day. And we will have days that are Job-like. We will have days that shift the course of our entire lives. Days that redefine us, days that do more than unsettle us. The great poet John Donne calls this day Job's sick day. And if you had a day like this, it's a day that takes away your breath and redirects your entire life and makes you shake with terror. That's a Job day, a Job sick day. After these back-to-back, quick and brutal, unforeseen calamities, Job's life is twisted and broken and shattered by grief. Any one of those disasters that we'll see hit Job as we look at chapter 1 would have finished off most of us. Job is penniless, homeless, childless, and without any answers. He's buried his 10 children, and now he's sitting in the city garbage dump covered with skin ulcers that are so extravagantly painful that the only kind of relief he can find is by cutting himself with pottery shards to try to alleviate the itching and the burning and the pain. Job's historic endurance is intended to instruct us about the mystery of misery, but it does so much more. And so I want to study the book of Job with you. And I want to give you eight reasons today, just quickly, to try to give you a bit of an overview of what we'll be getting into to pique your interest and to help you understand how you can be a good listener as I try to be a good preacher. What does Job have for us? And and know that I'm entering into this book with a lot of fear and trepidation. I think part of it is when you study Job, you think 
Well, I hope God doesn't job me as I'm in this thing. But also part of it is, is this book is so transcendent in its portrait and portrayal of God that I keep going back to Job chapter 40, verse 4, and think I'm just, I'm not, I'm not godly enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I haven't suffered enough. I mean, I want to put my hand over my mouth. That's what Job 40 says. It feels presumptuous to try to even dive into this book, but I'm positive there's blessing for us here. So why study it? Number one, it's a masterpiece of divine revelation. It's a masterpiece of divine revelation. It's not short. It's not easy. It's powerful and it's profound. It's 42 chapters long. If you were to read it out loud, it would take you about two hours, maybe just under. It's a substantive work. And it's not easy to study something that's this long. It would be easier to do Philemon 20 times, 42 times. But sometimes when you're dealing with something that has some difficulty to it, There's a parallel reward. In a book I read a long time ago, Piper said, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find a diamond. I think Job is like that. And it's been like that throughout history. It is a masterpiece of divine revelation. Don't take my word for it. Those who've studied it all agree Theodore Beza published his sermons in Job in 1587 in English, and he said this, I am minded to expound the histories of Job, in which there are as many hard and dark places, insomuch as I must hear of necessity sail, as it were among the rocks, and yet I hope I shall not make any shipwreck. Amen. Amen. It's not going to be an easy book for us to navigate, but I think if we apply ourselves to careful study of this book and thoughtful consideration of this book, we can make it through and not hit the rocks, but instead expound the histories of Job. Martin Luther, shortly after that time, said he described the book of Job with two words magnificent and sublime. Calvin preached 159 sermons in Job in a row. And by in a row, I mean he preached them all in the year 1554. There's only 52 Sundays in a calendar year, correct? So how did he do it? He preached 159 sermons in Job by preaching every day in the cathedral until it was finished. Spurgeon, over the course of his life, preached 88 sermons on Job. And when I think of guys like that, historical kind of Christian biographical heroes, men like Spurgeon and men like Calvin are men who suffered in extraordinary ways, losing children, 
having significant health problems, being betrayed and persecuted. Job to them was a rock to hang on to. And so we study this book as a masterpiece of divine revelation. One of my favorite commentators on Job, you'll hear me talk about Francis Anderson quite a bit, says it this way, the task of understanding it, the book of Job, is as rewarding as it is strenuous. One is constantly amazed at its audacious theology and at the magnitude of its intellectual achievement. Job is a prodigious book in the vast range of its ideas, in its broad coverage of human experience, in the intensity of its passion, in the immensity of its concept of God, and not least in its superb literary craftsmanship. From one man's agony, it reaches out to the mystery of God beyond words and explanations. This is a significant book. We don't know who wrote the book of Job, what Hebrew poet penned it down. Uh, We know that God inspired it. And it is a masterful human achievement, and it is a masterful divine achievement. And it comes together to give us this revelation of God that is so rich and so intricate that until we are glorified, men and women will continue to derive multifaceted insights and benefit and blessings and lessons from the book of Job. It's an inexhaustible treasure. I want you to not think of it as a standalone either. This is part of the the masterpiece that this work is. Uh, Andy Nacelli, a contemporary theologian guy, Uh, He wrote his dissertation on Job, and he argues, I think persuasively, that the book of Job is foundational to understanding the book of Romans. And whether you buy into that or not, and I think you, you should, you'll at least acknowledge that the entirety of the Bible links together with Job in in sometimes surprising ways. And I hope to show you some of those ways as we go through. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians. Paul quotes the book of Job on Mars Hill. Uh, The the apostle James uh, speaks of Job. Ezekiel, as I told you, uh, talks about Job's godliness. Job 28 is, I think, one of the strongest cases for why we need God's revelation in our lives in all of Scripture. And so Job's influence on the whole of Scripture, I think, will be seen as we study this masterpiece. This isn't some kind of light and easy undertaking. It's something that's going to require uh, time for me in the attic. It's where the magic happens. And time from you as a good listener, and I hope in a willingness to read this on your own as well. Because if you just show up here and and hear me kind of try to spin out some sermons, I don't think you'll derive the kind of benefit that something with this kind of beauty and artistry and, and complexity requires. So I would ask of you that you would spend some time in the book of Job. As we study through it, could you commit to reading it? I mean, some of you, you know, I'm sure want to commit to reading it 42 times or something like that. And and that's for the, you know, that's for the UCLA students. But for the rest of us, if we'll just 
together be in Job. If you can read the section in advance before we tackle it, I think you'll find help there. And if you can make it past chapter four, we can do this. Everybody's read chapter one, two, three of Job. But once it gets to the middle, I think it gets to the good stuff. And that's where it's going to require some help from listeners, some involvement. So that's number one, masterpiece. Number two, Job reorients our lives regarding suffering. And I don't want to take all the frosting off the cake. I want to leave some for weeks to come. But let me just say this in this way. Job reorients our lives regarding suffering. In other words, I think that in the Western world, we think that suffering is phenomenal. In other words, it is something unusual, something interrupting, something unexpected that takes away from the core of our lives, which is the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. In other words, we think that life is awesome, life is fun, life is good and cheery and and sweet and pretty and stuff like that. And your Instagram, you know, feed corresponds to that. But I believe Job is going to try to show us that suffering is not an interruption in this life. That the war that the marauding hordes come in and destroy Job's livelihood, the sickness that plagues Job's body, the bereavement that marks Job's family, the disease that covers Job's skin, the depression that clouds Job's mind, the impoverishment that robs Job's finances. All of these things are transcendent realities that you will experience not occasionally in a fallen world, but relentlessly as you grow older. You will suffer if you survive long enough. Do you get that? And so Job redirects our thinking as Western people, as people who would prefer superficiality, prefer entertainment, prefer Netflix, prefer more stimulation, more luxury, more comfort, more ease. And Job serves as this reminder that life isn't foundationally like that. It's not what life is like. I talked to you at one point in the past uh, about Dr. Paul Brand, the guy who helped come up with a cure for leprosy. He was a Christian man, and, and he wrote a book called The Gift of Pain, And he says, it's because the meaning of life in the United States is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom that suffering is so traumatic to Americans. That's strong. So to reorient our lives around suffering is to think of suffering not as an interruption into the norm, but as a part of life in a fallen world. Cultural anthropologist Richard Sweeter, he teaches at the University of Chicago, not a Christian. 
explains this in a potent way. And we'll, we'll come back to some of the stuff he says later, but I just want to give you this taste of it to think about reorienting the way we think about suffering in a fundamental way. He says, when it comes to suffering, the reigning metaphor of this contemporary culture is chance misfortune. The sufferer is a victim under attack from natural forces devoid of intentionality. And that means that suffering is separated from the narrative structure of human life, a kind of noise, an accidental interference into the life drama of the sufferer. Suffering has no intelligible relation to any plot except as chaotic interruption. And then he goes into studies of other cultures who value things beyond affluence or ease or comfort, things like enlightenment or uh, peace or those kind of priorities as sort of an indictment of Western society. He does this in a godless way, but I think he connects to something when we hear those words, chance misfortune. Sadly, even Christians think that way. But Job shows us that His faith survives loss and holds on to God in a world where suffering is normal, expected, not extraordinary. Number three, I think one of the big lessons we'll learn in the book of Job is that the worth of God, the worth of God is not dependent on our comfort or blessing. The worth of God is not dependent on our comfort or blessing. And this is a a lesson that comes from suffering because we're not, we don't have 42 chapters of suffering. I promise that's not the only message that this book has for us. It is foundational. It is important. it, It is how the story begins. But something greater than suffering is what God has for us in Job. In other words, the worth of God is something that is on display in Job and in his mixed counselors and in God's whirlwind of speeches. And it's something that comes out of the context of suffering. Christopher Ash says it this way, in some deep way, it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. Did you catch that? In other words, worshiping God is easy when life is easy. Worshiping God is automatic when we are blessed and prosperous and healthy and happy and when stuff is nice. But that is not worshiping God necessarily. That's worshiping his benefits, his blessings. And so Job shows us that ascribing worth or worshiping God thinking greatly of God, trusting God, is not dependent on us feeling perfect, feeling well, having stuff. Ash goes on to say it this way, that the Lord disagrees with us must teach us something very deep. 
The glory of God really is more important than your or my comfort. In the end, it is necessary and right that this man should suffer personal and intimate attack upon himself so that we see absolutely and without doubt that God is worthy of worship. And so the question is, dear friends, can you worship God when everything is going right in your life? Easy. The greater question is, dear friends, can you worship God when you're on the trash heap, when you've lost it all, when you have nothing left but God? Is he worth it? So you see, in that way, this book teaches us so much more than how to suffer well or the problem of evil. It's trying to show us the worth and matchlessness and glory and beauty of God. And suffering strips everything else away. Number four, it teaches us that suffering is a holy gift. Suffering is a holy gift. Douglas O'Donnell says, we've come to a book that will teach us that God's love for us is bigger and broader than sentimentality and sympathy, and that his will for our lives is vaster and grander than our personal happiness or success, that we are to love God, to cherish him as he does, whether he gives or takes away, whether he gives or takes away. Number five, it reminds us that we don't always get the answers we seek one of the wonderful blessings of Job is that it leaves us so much like the book of Ecclesiastes does with more questions because life's not easy and you're not God. It reaches into the complexities of our lives. It plums the depths of our despair, of our outrage, of what it feels like to be deserted by God. And in the example of this man's particular excruciating suffering, it doesn't just give us pat answers. It doesn't, it refuses that we don't hear from God until the final four chapters. We got to go 38 chapters before God even speaks. And after God speaks, mystery remains. God is revealed God is the object of fear and worship and even terror as his voice quakes the earth, as Job is humbled before the mighty and awesome revelation of God and Job stands before God, Job 38 verse 34, like a man and Job is trusting and Job is satisfied, but Job never read Job 1 and 2. He didn't know about the transaction between God and Satan. He didn't know what was happening in his life. And he never would in his earthly life have all the answers. The reader of this book knows so much more than the main character does at the outset. That's what's amazing about this. And so when we suffer in life, we don't have chapters one and two. We don't know what's going on in the throne room. We just have to trust and be satisfied in God and know that if we trust him, he will never fail us. He'll be with us, whatever we face. 
And we can keep trusting and we can keep trusting whether we are blessed or not, whether we're happy or not, whether life is easy or not, and we can trust him and we can trust him and we can adore him and we can love him even though at times he will terrify us. We don't always get the answers that we seek. Number five. Number six. It informs us of worldviews. Boy, that one's really hard to put next to this one. Come on, Duncan. <laughs> informs us of worldviews. Sounds just compelling. What do I mean? And this is important, and this one really, really does, I think, help college students. You have a worldview. Your professors have worldviews. Atheistic humanism, most likely. Postmodern whack-a-mole, most likely. That's right, postmodern whack-a-mole is a worldview. Job's three friends and then final human counselor have worldviews. And though they were from thousands of years ago, and though their technology is dated, their lines of argument involving science and history and philosophy are timeless. You will be blown away by Bildad because you have had classes with Professor Bildad. You will be shocked to hear Eliphaz because you can turn on Christian television and today hear the same exact argumentation. We will be exposed to these worldviews and, and people usually are just dismissive of Job's three friends because they are knuckleheads and they are, they are unhelpful. Or Job calls them miserable counselors. How can you improve on that? Miserable counselors. It's way better than knucklehead. But they're not all wrong. And you'll see that throughout life. You'll get advice that is dead on almost. You will hear somebody say something that is Bible truth with some other stuff added on. And part of studying Job, especially the middle section, which is the neglected section of Job, is to dig in to points of view and compare them and contrast them and sift through them and discern, hard Z them, so that you can understand how a biblical worldview is built. And that's what we'll learn from those counselors as they lean into science and lean into history and lean into philosophy and lean into theology, every bit of it imperfectly. They're not dummies. They're brilliant. These are the smartest guys around. Job wasn't a joker. Job was a big deal. And so when his friends come, these are the leading leaders of the day, and they come to say something to him, and they don't have all the information, but they make their claims. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, uh, they actually quote, Job's friends are quoted as biblical truth, as inspired biblical truth. And so there's some profound stuff in there. These guys honestly have, I would say, pretty good theology, better than most people's theology today. But you can have right theology and still make wrong conclusions. 
And that's something we'll learn from Job's friends. Number seven, Job is a lesson about human perseverance and divine compassion. I just stole that from James 5.11. It says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If that's all you get out of Job, praise be to Yahweh. If you can learn to persevere, in other words, if you can learn to have unbelievable belief like Job does in Job 19, where he says, my flesh will fail, but I know my Redeemer lives. If you can have unbelievable belief, if you can hear God through pain, or as C.S. Lewis say, hear the shout of God in pain, his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, then you can learn to persevere like Job. But human perseverance is presented in James 5.11 alongside of something theocentric, and that is God's compassion. We will see, even in God's silence for all those chapters, that he'll never break his word. He'll never break his promise. He'll never violate his covenant. He's a divinely compassionate, faithful, covenant-keeping God. And in even the most appalling trials, God will show his mercy, his compassion. And we can learn to believe in an unbelievable way. And number eight, the book of Job, like all of Scripture, will bring us to Jesus. The Bible is Christocentric. The theme, the goal, the aim of the Scriptures is Christ. And we always go to Job 19, I know my Redeemer lives, and that will be a glorious portrait of who Christ is to us and who Christ was to Job in a proto-evangelon kind of a way, but the entire book of Job will set us up for Jesus. It will set us up to be able to embrace a Messiah who suffers. The book of Job will present us with wisdom that is going to be hidden in the one who will be manifest as God in man, the one who takes on flesh and will come to us like Job's troubles and Job's counselors and then Job's final revelation in unguessable ways. Again, Francis Anderson, he entered a domain of suffering reserved for him alone. No man can bear the sin of another, but Jesus carried the sins of all. In one life only as Job excelled in both innocence and grief. In Jesus, who sinned not at all, but who endured the greatest agony of any man, in his perfection of obedience and of suffering, the questions of Job and all of us have their final answer. And in that way, Job will set us up for the Messiah and point us to the one who never sinned yet suffered. So come with me and come with an uncountable number of human stories that run parallel with Job and learn 
how to love God for what He is worth. Father, thank You for this book and bless us. Would it be Your will to teach us and bless us and help us as we study it in coming weeks and months? In Jesus' name, amen. Remember that with the Holy Spirit's help, it is your responsibility to put into practice the things that you have learned. Thank you for listening. GraceChurch.org Thank you.